This podcast is a production of Athlete Plus, the people, stories, and science behind elite athletes and teams. Athlete Plus is the official podcast network of the Institute for Coaching Excellence, a research, education, and outreach center in the College of Health and Human Performance at the University of Florida. Hello, this is Kevin Carr here on the Athlete Plus Network. And today we are so, so happy and delighted to bring another great show to you. I am here representing University of Florida and the Institute for Coaching Excellence. And I am able to bring you the hit show. That's right, How I Transition. And today's guest, man, we are so delighted to have you. Today's guest is Hazel Clark on The Hit Show. Hazel's bio, I could go on and on, and I will, but I want to let you know the conversation is what today is about. So we're delighted to bring this to you and to bring her to you by way of Bermuda. That's right. We get international on this show. And with that, I will introduce our guest. Hazel Clark, the youngest sibling, was born in Livingston. New Jersey, and grew up by her father's side during the days when he was a principal at Eastside High. Much like her older brother and sister, Hazel was encouraged by her father to pursue track and field, and to this day, she has not looked back at her career and has been celebrated for that. After graduating from Columbia High School, Hazel accepted an athletic scholarship to the University of Florida, where her older brother was a coach here as well. Hazel is considered one of the most decorated and notable collegiate track and field athletes in history. And in so doing, she has been able to set NCAA meet records and has earned four NCAA titles and the distinction of being the only woman to go undefeated in SEC competition. Considered one of the strongest middle distance front runners of her time, Hazel is a three time Olympian and the winner of an impressive seven national titles. She's also led her family's historic Olympic trial sweep as the 2000 Olympic trials champion. In her time since retiring from the world of competitive running, Hazel has gained a vast array of experiences as a commentator, executive, executive producer, event producer, and brand ambassador. Her roles have included serving the U.S. Sports Convoy, executive director of the Georgia Track Club, Coca-Cola Global Sports Marketing Associate, former director, of the Georgia Meet of Champions. I could go on and on and on. Today, Hazel serves as the Director of Sports Development at the Bermuda Tourism Authority. She lives on the island with her husband, Shane, and their daughter. Please welcome to the hit show, <laughs> Hazel Clark. Welcome, Hazel. I love that. That was a great intro. I need to take a road with me. You, you didn't miss anything. That was impressive. Thank you. Hey, we did our research. <laughs> we have to. We're a research one institution, so we're so glad to have you. So I want to start out by saying the most obvious question, who is Hazel Clark? Wow. I don't get that question much, but I think at this point in my life, Hazel Clark is a wife, a mother first. Um, I'm very proud of the strides I've been able to make in the corporate business world. Um, you touched on my work with Bermuda and my, my work with the Georgia Track Club. And um, I have a family business, the Clark Family Running Camps, in partnership with Nike. Wow. Um, and it's just been amazing to be able to kind of parlay the lessons I learned as an athlete 
and the things that my parents instilled in me to success post-athletics, which I think is so key. So um, who am I? I'm a friend. I'm a, a mom. I'm a sister. Um, so happy to have my little daughter, Hazel. I think that's right now something that I'm just so involved in and focused in as well. So. That's awesome. You know, you you went into it and we're going to get a chance to rewind and bring some of this out. And that's why we're here today. What was it like growing up in your family of high achievers? Tell us a little bit about that. I'm going to tell you something. I saw it as a burden. I thought it was the worst thing. I used to look around the dinner table and say, why me? Why do I have to have a father with Morgan Freeman sitting by his side, learning how to be like him on the cover of Time magazine? President Ronald Reagan was calling our house. You know, we went out to the front of the house. Are you kidding? I'm not kidding. Okay. I mean, there's footage of me walking out the front door with my father. The cameras are lined up and I'm talking at seven, eight years old doing interviews about my father and the movie. I really grew up at the height of his fame and I Mm. experienced the ups and the downs and the scrutiny and also, you know, the people that supported him taught me a lot about life. My father was always teaching me through his experiences and preparing me for the things that I would inevitably experience as well. So when you have a, a talented family as such, the, I imagine you and your siblings were at peace all the time, no fighting, <laughs> get along. Like, what, what was that like? Well, I'm so much younger than them that they kind of took a parental role towards me. I mean, I was the youngest one and I avoided track and field at all costs. My sister was an Olympian. My brother was an, a world-class athlete. They both got full scholarships to college and then went on to have elite careers. And then my brother became a world-class coach. So, and then we add my sister-in-law, who's an Olympic gold medalist, to the mix. So I was little sis, and they were being patient with me as I tried to find myself. And so I tried different sports, wasn't really good at basketball, missed all my shots, you know, (laughs) Um, and figure skating, I felt. I was going to say, I heard about figure skating? Really? Wow. Yeah. So, I I mean, figure skating was something I got into, and it was as far away from track and field as I could get. I was trying to get out of that shadow, you know? And my father, I remember him sitting with a dictionary in that cold ice rink. And like, he would be there like I was Christy Yamaguchi. I was terrible, but he gave me everything to be successful. And he said, the only thing I want you to do is give your best and not quit. So he, my dad wasn't the one that was like the parent that was just there because you were good. Even when you weren't good, he was always by your side and encouraging you. And like, there was a lesson in just not quitting, even when it got hard and just pushing through and being your best. So, so it he, taught me he, he let you explore and really figure out what was and what could be or what was not. And right. I think you, you took that and you, how did that end up getting you into the track and family, the track and field family that you guys have been for forever now, seems? He let me explore to a point. Okay. It was getting, I was about 16 years old. People don't know this. I pushed it to the limit. 16 years old, still wasn't running. And one day I went up to figure skate, came down face first, knocked myself out cold, woke up in the hospital and my eyes fluttered open. I looked at my dad and I expected him to just, you know, pepper me with kisses and hold me and hug me. And he said, I've had enough. You're running track. <laughs> and two weeks later, he took me to a track meet. He wasn't kidding. And he, yeah. And I was like, this is not good. I have no coach. I've never trained. This is going to be embarrassing. He just threw you out there. He threw me out there. And he said, you, you're a Clark. Just go for it. Just give it your best. I'm like, this is not a good plan. But what are you going to tell someone with a baseball bat? Like, <laughs> you, you're going to do it, right? So I went and ran, and um, I was winning. I was like, he's right. I'm just mm-hmm. talented. I don't even have to train. You know, I'm beating everyone. And one by one, everybody passed me in the field, and I ended up last place. Oh, in your first race? First race. They oh. clapped me in. It was so oh, bad. Wow. It was like pity, like pity <laughs> clap. like, 
Come on, honey, you can finish. And I, I got to that finish line, and my dad was standing there. And I said, Dad, you said I'm a clerk. I'm going to be able to do great things. He said, you will, but it's going to take hard work. And I want to teach you that talent is not enough. So he put me with a coach. A year later, I was number one in the nation. So that's wow. how I got into track. So when you think about, I mean, everybody doesn't know. I mean, Joe Clark. I mean, yeah. you know the movie. How, how Without the baseball bat, <laughs> how is... How was that? Was there that sense of you knew what you had to do, but there was this other side of of being the daughter of Joe Clark? How, how, what would you say that was like that people don't know and they don't necessarily get or have gotten that a movie couldn't tell you or show you? Well, I'll tell you, people don't understand how my father's parenting style worked. He's a tough love dad. My dad played no games. He let you know that I expect you to achieve, I expect you to be disciplined, I expect you to do great things, I'm going to give you the tools to do that. He, If you had a problem, he would say, you have to find a way to get over it. Mm-hmm. There's no point in having a pity party. 80% of the people don't care, and the other 20% are glad it's not them. He was that type of dad, right? <laughs> so I think it worked because it started with love. The tough love, we knew he loved us. We knew he was committed to us. So when he gave you the hard lessons, when he told you the hard things, you trusted him. You didn't like what you heard, but you trusted him. And so all of us trusted him and our parents. And we just kind of went along with his, even coming to University of Florida, I didn't want to come here. My mother had had a stroke, a cerebral hemorrhage. She was not doing well. I didn't want to leave her in New Jersey. And he said, that's where you belong. And I always think, wow, what if he wouldn't have directed me to come here? I think my whole trajectory of my life would be different if I wasn't a Gator. Wow. That's, that's profound. You know, one of the things that I, I just want to say, you know, hear that your dad's impact resonated. I had a mom that's like Joe Clark. Oh, you understand my <laughs> yes, name. Yes, <laughs> I do. I do. But no, just that whole having a strong family and having a foundation like that, you know, certainly we, we applaud your family and efforts and all the things that he's done to advance education and bring, you know, a culture of success through, you know, dedication and and hard work and discipline, it, it's, it's needed. It's still needed it's in these times. So. And I'm not shocked to hear that you had a tough love parent as well, because whenever I meet other people that had that same upbringing, there's just a certain resilience there. And you understand why they overcame and were able to achieve certain things. I think it's one of the best tools and blessings you could have didn't feel that way as a kid, per se, no, going but when it. you look back, you realize that it, you're really fortunate to have that. So. Oh, yeah. Without a doubt. I want to take us now into the space of transition when I think about um, what was it like you were at this point where you said earlier you got a scholarship to University of Florida. How and what and when did you know you had it for track and field? When did you know it was it for you that this was going to be a road you were going to take? That's a great question. I think I made the commitment to myself to get very serious about track and field my sophomore year. My freshman year, I came to school and I was training, but maybe, you know, kind of feeling myself. It was the first time away from my parents (laughs) and I wasn't as focused as I should have been. I ended up getting mono and I looked back and I missed NCAAs outdoors and I said, I will never be in this position again. I don't want to have, if I lose, if I don't make it, it's because someone was better than me, not because I didn't do what I needed to do. Mm -hmm. Um, From sophomore year on, I was really committed and focused. Um, I still didn't, for some reason, it didn't resonate with me that I was going to have this professional career Mm -hmm. until my senior year when sponsors started approaching me, New Mm -hmm. Balance, Adidas, Nike, 
wanting to give me a contract. And I said, wow, I was just trying to be my best. And next thing I knew, I was in a position to sign a a contract, which um, I was 21 years old and I retired from Nike at 34 years old. So I had a good stretch. Wow, you did a nice run and not easy to get. I've done some work for Nike and they only pick the best. So I can say that. But when I think about you coming from up top, you know how they say the tri-state were up top. What was it like to go from Jersey to Gainesville and that whole transition? What was that like for you? Total culture shock. I mean, I remember I was I was coming with the house music, the Jersey house <laughs> yeah, yeah, music, yeah. and they're playing like 95 South. I'm like, what's going on? But I had immediate friendships and connections. And I mm. needed those because as I mentioned, my mom was really ill, really sick. Mm-hmm. It was a it was a hard time for me, a, a, a kind of a sensitive time for me. So they became my family. Um, and I just remember my first SEC title. We have it on video. I won and the whole team came and tackled me. And I was at <laughs> the bottom of this pile thinking, I found a family. It's more than a team. Mm. It's a family. And we're still that way today. So it's very exciting. What was the moment, I guess, at UF that you could say was a signature moment for your career? And also, what was the moment where you weren't maybe at your best as a student? And how did you come out of that? I go back to freshman year, growing pains. I wasn't at my best. And we talked about my sister. Mm-hmm. You know, she played that kind of straddled the mother and older sister role because of our age gap. And she was meeting with my academic advisors and my brother took my car away. You don't have a right to do that. He said, I do until you get it together. Um, And so I was not as focused and wasn't as academically sound as I should have been that freshman year. Mm -hmm. But I really made the turn my sophomore year, um, got more serious, but I had issues just like anyone. I had injuries at some point. I had Mm -hmm. a navicular stress fracture. I had setbacks. I had a really bad performance anxiety, which I haven't talked about a lot, mm. which was almost crippling for me. What, what do you mean by that? So the weight of the Clark family legacy mm-hmm. was not something I was equipped to manage. And I look back, I really needed more sports psychology help. I mm-hmm. think I thought champions don't need help. You, know, you don't admit weakness, you just get through it. Yeah. But I would sit in a dark room and I would shake and I would sweat and I would actually really? dread competing. Yes. Would and you, so, what, stomach, butterflies? Everything. I couldn't eat. I oh. couldn't watch TV. I was not enjoying it. I mean, and I always felt like when I finished, I didn't let my family legacy down. I didn't let my teammates down. And I realized now that's not the way you're supposed to look at it. Mm. So I regret that I didn't enjoy those wins and experiences as, as much. much as I should have. Oh. And I would have been a better athlete, quite frankly, and gone to even higher heights if I could have gotten over that. If, if, if you maybe figured out how to process that better and manage through that, that's that's something that we're hearing so much these days about today's athletes. And we're seeing so many more interventions and support systems. What do you think about all the support that we're hearing and beginning to see happen in sports? Do you think it's time has come way past due? And where do we have to go to kind of get to that place where you said they can enjoy it more and feel that it truly is making them better as a result? And and we even hear some of the stigma. So take take us there. Yes. I think what we need to do first is let athletes, young athletes specifically know that you can be a champion um, and still have these fears or these challenges. And it's okay to talk about them. You have to communicate about them. The first time I was ever really vulnerable, Nike brought me in to do a speech at a, at a running camp. And my speech used to be, I'm a three-time Olympian. I loved running, blah, blah. And I finally just, I took the speech and I threw it to the side and I said, look, I'm going to tell you the truth today. I didn't enjoy running as much as I should have. I had fears. I had struggles. I had you know, mental 
struggles. I had performance anxiety. There were times I could have done better. And kids were crying in the audience. And mm. it was my most impactful conversation. I realized I went through that to help the next generation. We have to give them a safe place. We have to be able to teach them coping strategies. Um, but most importantly, we just need to talk about it because there was this stigma that I felt I'm a champion and that's weak. That's weak to have these fears and these challenges. I can't talk about it. I can't tell my coach how bad I'm doing or that I'm scared to step out on the track. Champions aren't scared. And because I was winning, no one recognized that no, I had a problem. Right. Because so, yeah. the, the winning often, there shouldn't be any problems there where right. you're succeeding. But even through the wins, there's, there was this silent, maybe particularly in your case, silent, suffering silence to some degree. When, when did you, did you ever during that time see any or get any support or help? As, maybe not as much as you probably should have then. No, I didn't. I didn't get any help because I never shared the extent of my pain. Mm -hmm. um, I just thought, push through it. That's what you do. You're tough. You got to get through it. Maybe that's the one downfall of my tough love upbringing. My dad was not the type to really let you talk too much about your feelings. It was, I have a problem, dad. Okay, you got find a way to get over it, overcome it, come up with a solution. So with that, that was my natural thing. I have to come up with a solution, but I didn't have the tools to do it. Sure. So I was suffering. And I think at the times, I, I certainly can say that even from from cultural standpoint, we really didn't talk about where we struggled. So our parents didn't even get that and they didn't know how to talk to us. So cer certainly some of that I felt as well. Like, how do you talk about problems? Because life is going on. Hey, I got three, four kids to support. Make sure they go to school, get their grades, make sure they stay out of trouble. and you know, really no room in that to talk about, well, where, let me process some of that. So I think that the times where we were really didn't allow even our parents, if they had the room to think and, and breathe. I know my mom was steady raising four kids. So to talk about personal stuff, it never really got, it's like, you got to go to school, got to go to work, got to go to practice, got to perform. So I wish and I'm glad we're getting in this conversation about how to get to that area of support and encouragement and love. I really appreciate that that piece that you're bringing here because I, I know a lot of young people are sort of looking at. You said your brother was a coach here? He is my coach. It, I mean, Poor think thing. about think about your brother being your brother then. Now he's your coach and you have this level of accountability. What did you learn having accountability, particularly from a family member or just a really good coach? What would you say were some of the key things having great coaches and great support systems that when athletes are trying to be their greatest and, and really reach the top like you did, what, what do you take from having a good coach? My brother was so key in my life um, because I, and I didn't think about it till later. I moved away at 17 years old. I went to my brother and my brother was my coach until I retired. So wow. most of my life moments, my brother was by my side and he became a friend. We, you know, we have an age gap, but we became very, very close. And he knows me like the, to this day, the back of my mm -hmm. his hand. Mm -hmm. He knew when I was not getting off course and he would, he had some of that little Joe Clark in him. He would get me back on, on, you know, back on my path. But the main thing about my brother is he had more space for me to communicate my feelings. And mm -hmm. he knew there was a struggle there. I wouldn't open up about it. But I remember one day I had a bad race and I was sitting in a room and I was devastated. I, I wouldn't come out the room for days. I would always do that. I was really hard on myself. Mm -hmm. And he said, can I ask you something? You lost the race. Yes. 
do we still love you? Yes. Okay. Do, or do you still have your health and your breath and your body? Mm. And he would put into perspective, this is just running. This yeah. is not why we love you. This is not your whole life. It helped me. It brought me peace. Mm -hmm. um, but I just never totally got to where I wanted to be because I just, quite frankly, wouldn't open up about it and ask for the help to mm. really get where I needed to be. It seems like, you know, having a brother who became your coach and moving you to this level of excellence that you did get, there were the ups and downs. And I think everybody yeah. has to realize in doing your, the work that it takes to get to the next level, you got to manage your transitions. We're talking about the hit show, your yes, transition. Talk about how you, as an emerging athlete and getting to that almost pro status, you had a bunch of brands. I mean, today's sports world, it's for student athlete is the name, image, and likeness. You were doing it before any and all of that. Talk to us about how the NIL in your day and time came calling. How did you manage that? What was it like when you've got your first call and then you had all these deals. How did you manage through? Did you have a lawyer? Did you have an agent? That's what what was going on? So I had my family who had been through some of it. I was lucky that I had my sister who right. made many libertines, my brother who coached them. So they understood the negotiation. We also got an agent who helped me to negotiate my contract and get me into competitions. So that's another aspect. Mm -hmm. um, and you're right. I, I mean, I look back, my brother always says, if when you were in college, if they had the NIL, it'd be so amazing to you're see right. how it would have been for you. I didn't have that, but I did have, and maybe this set the foundation for what I'm doing today. I was able to negotiate partnerships with CVS, Caremark, and different organizations where I use my likeness and my background um, to, to show a company that I was valuable as an ambassador. And I think that was really cool and before my time. And a lot of my teammates, some who had more Olymp Olympic medals and more credentials, would say, Hazel, how do you how get those you? deals? Yeah, I was able to position myself that way. And that's, that set the foundation for what I'm doing today, for sure. So my niece is um, an NCAA champion, a world champion, a Gator. Shout her out. Yes, What's her name? Yes, the Diggs. And <laughs> I mean, Talitha. it just, it's amazing to see the opportunities that are available to her and to see her taking advantage of them. I just think she's such a perfect ambassador, not just because she's my niece. And she's so mature in her decisions in the way that she's positioning herself. Wow, she's surrounded by a great village of champions and yeah. people will help her um, achieve her highest goals. So, I mean, you guys have set an amazing foundation. When you were a champion in college, what, what did that mean for you to represent the University of Florida and get that national champion medal and put that on? What, what did it mean to be a champion when you kind of got at this, the height of your collegiate career? Well, first of all, it meant quite a bit because I was so close to my teammates. And my teammates played a role in, because of my performance anxiety, they, we didn't talk about it, but they knew I was having challenges. They were the ones that got me to the line, mm -hmm. kept me calm. They would stand on the sideline when, when I was running, give me that look, you're okay. Mm -hmm. Take a deep breath. And it's amazing that they knew <laughs> to do that. You got this. And they were there, win, lose, or draw. And that meant the world to me. And so I wanted to make them proud. I wanted to make my family proud. There were so many people that... Um, contributed to my success. So I always felt that, you know, mm -hmm. that. And then just University of Florida, I feel so much proud to, proud, pride to be a Gator. Mm -hmm. I mean, this network, um, I have alumni reach out to me on LinkedIn and I just feel connected to them. I feel proud that um, I came through this. I always talk to my daughter and I know it's not right. She can make the decision she wants, but I always say, oh, wouldn't you love to be a Gator? I mean, and she's all crazy about the Gators. And like I said, when my niece chose University of Florida, it's special because wow. yeah, I'm alumni here. So 
My father was the ultimate gator dad. When I came here to school, he moved here. And his whole what? farm was orange and blue. Um, so gators, and that's in our blood. That's a big part of our family history. It means a lot. So when you finished here, you finished with a degree in... Yes, sociology. Yes. Okay, wonderful. Yes. And you have been able to use your degree. You could have went to work, right? You yep. could have went and got... But you got the chance to turn pro. So many people want to do that. Yes. Talk to us about the transition from college to pro in the world of track and field. How did that come about? And when and what did you do you needed to do differently when you turned pro? Well, it's funny. My brother always said, try to do the same things you did to be successful in college when you go pro. The mistake people make is they try to change it up. And that's ah, when they... So he was point. making me still stay on that college system, get up at 6 a.m. and okay. stay disciplined. The regiment. The regiment. And I think that did help me have a really smooth transition. Um, I was still training with our college team and in a way or around the college team um, when I was 21 years old and now transitioning to make my first Olympic team. That helped me a lot. Um, I think the big difference for me was I missed my teammates because mm. I had the performance anxiety being on the road in Europe alone. So where were you going? Different places? Europe, I mean, you're, you go to the whole European circuit, Lausanne, and it felt lonely to me. And, mm -hmm. you know, at Monaco, and you're going from me to beautiful me to places, Germany, beautiful but, places. But lonely, lonely. at times. So remember, no there was no technology that. like right. today. I mean, you're sitting in a room, in your thoughts, in your mind, anxiety is building, and there was no teammate come, Hazel, come, let's go eat. And mm. so that was really tough. So that's the difference in the track versus, like, say, you play a, t a big team sport. Right. You really digging in by yourself, Thanks. training a lot with a few other people. But really, it's that's the thing about track and field. It's so different. So different that way. Absolutely. Wow. That's yeah. that's a really good point. One of the things I, I thought was really important about your transition into the pro piece is about how you lived abroad from here and there. Like, Talk to us about what that meant to live in different places around the world. Uh, you being a woman of color yes. and everything, maybe not knowing the language, the food, all those things. Yeah, there were some challenges and some positive. I think, first of all, travel, meeting different cultures and different people, that's so key in that's, your development. Was, mm -hmm. I'm, how fortunate was I to do that? That being said, there were, uh, I was just talking to my husband about this, there were some experiences that were painful um, where maybe you were treated a certain way because you're black, because you're female, mm -hmm. and it kind of slaps you in the face and catches you off guard. Um, but it's, it's a part of, again, the development and the growth. And um, I, I didn't have too many experiences like that, but I did have some. Mm -hmm. um, I just learned from them. I just pushed through them. I just, I guess, again, I was prepared for all of it. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm grateful to my parents for that. Yeah, for all that. Look, you had, were inducted into the UF Hall of Fame. You are known as a Gator great. I love that. How was that experience for you when you were inducted to the Hall of Fame? One of my top five in, the, in my lifetime. Oh, wow. Because, awesome. yes, I got to say to my father, thank you. <laughs> and I know what you mean by having um, the opportunity and the platform to talk to your parents and say what they meant. and what they still mean to you. So I really, really understand that. You know, you, and we can come back to this, you became an Olympian. Yeah. What a great opportunity to represent your country is no small feat. How did you feel representing your country? 
in a way that very few people in the world could ever, ever achieve. And you were able to do it not once, <laughs> not twice, but three times be Olympian. Talk about that. I think the most special time was the first one oh, because okay. we made history. What um, year was that? What that year? was 2000. Okay. And to know that your family members made up the whole Olympic team. You have everybody <laughs> in the nation. What are the odds that everyone who, at your dinner table? Team, your it was family, me, you my sister-in-law, and my sister. Oh. And people couldn't believe the three of them swept all three spots, you know? That's and great. Going into it, my negative voice said, you might be the one left behind. You're the mm. youngest. They've made Olympic teams before. You've never done it. You said that to yourself. So, and you're was, in the Olympics and you're- No, this was the trial. This trials, was even making trials. the team, which okay, people, that's the most rigorous part. Is it because really? Because you, you have to perform at that moment. Everybody's gunning for those three spots. You mm -hmm. could have a bad day. You could have an injury. You could just not be feeling well. And you're done. You don't get mm -hmm. a do-over. So I felt that pressure and I was worried about not making it. Mm -hmm. I stepped out there, so nervous I fall started, which you don't do in 800. <laughs> okay. Finally ran the race, and I won the race. And I remember saying, wow, not only did I make this team, I'm leading my family as the youngest. And my father was down the track, and he was so proud of us. As a family, my brother coached all of us. What a moment. Yeah. So that was the beginning of my Olympic career. We were able to go to the opening ceremonies as a family. Mm -hmm. um, I remember the cameras at home. NBC really focused on our family dynamic and that story. And just to have a story that was inspirational, a family story was really special. Yeah, what an achievement to go through that yeah. with your family and really, really put the name out there for the world yeah. to know that you guys are high, high achievers. Such a great feat. So proud of you. And thank you yeah. for being world-class and yeah. representing the country is so great. So many people from the Olympics, in my opinion, the Olympics don't get the credit yeah. that it just deserves. You're talking elite in the world, not a NCAA football <laughs> championship, not a baseball pennant, but you're talking competing against the world wow. and you are able to achieve it not once, but twice with three times. So, And I have to drive that home to people about being an Olympic finalist because there's that means you're top eight in the world. Out of everyone in the world at that moment, and this is the top of the top, you mm -hmm. are top eight. So to make that Olympic final, sometimes people say, oh, you didn't get the gold. You didn't get the medal. They forget that um, it, at that point, it's really anyone's game. I mean, there's tents separating you from a medal, not a medal, mm -hmm. winning the gold. Um, but everyone on that level is just represents the best of the best. So. And, and take us through when you're that top eight. Like, what does it feel like when you're standing there and you've got the moment you've worked four years, maybe eight years, 12 years? That Does it feel like a special euphoria? Because many people will never get to yeah. talk to us about what it feels like to, to do that. I think when it's done right, it feels euphoric. I think for me, I was very proud to see USA on the screen and to hear my country and, and to see the flags, you know, waving because I was the only American representing the country in the final. But there was also that underlying, you know, tension mm. I have with the performance anxiety. And so there was always this tense feeling that I had instead of, go, I'm going to kill this. It was, I've got to do this. I've got, it was almost, you know, this pressure feeling. So I, I do. I hate to say that. I mean, I, but that's the reality. And so I have to be real about that. So. I really appreciate that because it, it, it's a goal that I think a lot of athletes these days, because there's so much money and other yeah. things. Do you feel like the Olympics is still the most ultimate sports achievement that any athlete in the world can achieve, in your opinion? 
You know, I do certainly in the sport of track and field and mm-hmm. many, um, and many Olympic sports, but, um, I really do. I, and there's something special about the Olympics that we don't talk about beyond the medals, beyond the television and the contracts. You sit in a, in a dining hall with people from all over the world and you're all eating at these tables and mixed together and you're mm-hmm. swapping pins and you live in a village where there's these different houses and cultures mixed together and everyone's just trying to represent their country and be their best. And it's so pure and special when you think about it that way. Mm-hmm. That was what I loved about the Olympic experience. So um, I, I just think it's special for so many reasons. And once you're in that family, it's something that can never be taken from you. And it's, it's very, 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 very special. Yeah. Now, here's a question I'd love for you to give our audience because it, it's a, a poignant moment. It's a real important time. We are seeing the greats, Serena Williams, Allison Felix, Sue Bird, Sylvia Foles have all retired or are retiring this year. They're all in transition. What, what do you think those women mean to you and mean to other women who are in their careers, but at some point have to transition. What do you think their impact has been to the sport? And what do you see when they have to make the transition to it? It just resonates still the fact that everyone, every athlete at some point. So can you talk to that? And how do you see yourself in that as well? Well, I see, first of all, every single one of them, I can find a way that they've inspired me. There's a point of connectivity, specifically when I think of Serena Williams and some of the things that she said and some of the things she's gone through uh, as a black woman in her sport. Now, I'm a distance runner. And at one point, there weren't that many of us Mm -hmm. either. Um, And I I remember, you know, just some disparities with pay and different things that that were challenges. And I know she's broken through so many barriers. And, you know, she's got a daughter my age. And to see that, Mm -hmm. I admire her because... It's hard to be a parent and be as committed as she has and stay at the top of the world and have the longevity she had. So she's an inspiration to me. Um, Allison Felix was my teammate. I was about Um, to say, you have to. Yeah, we broke the American record in sprint medley together. Mm -hmm. And I've seen her. She's she's just amazing. Her transition, she's set up beautifully. And she's got all these companies. And and I think I, I, I just really admire the way that they've been forward thinking with that, but also that she didn't just make it about her. She mm-hmm. used her platform to change rules around, like I said, having a child while you're an athlete. She was the one that was most outspoken about that. That that took a lot of courage, and that's how you change the world. So, yeah. Absolutely. They're amazing ladies. When you, you, you mentioned something, and I think this is important, you know, the support for women and sport, the support around pay and around equality, the, the same facilities, resources, all that. What, where, where do you think we need to go still to make sure that gets even and the, the equality and there's inclusion for women and, and, and particularly the pay and the viewership? How, what do we need to do differently? What's not happening in that space where we haven't transitioned our thinking well enough as a audience or as fans or as the leaders? What, what, what needs to happen to get there still, in your opinion? Because you're in track and field. You probably feel a lot of, a little bit of the disparities. Maybe that might be different. Yes. Maybe it's just in the U.S. I mean, think about. I think it's a global situation. Okay. I, I think that it starts with, first of all, again, having the courage to speak up about it. I mean, I'm going to be, I'm, I never really thought about challenging rules around the fact that I was going to lose my contract. It's just the way it was. You lose your contract if you have a child, make a choice. I never thought to say, hey, 
how about giving us some rights to have a child and come back and and, and compete? Mm-hmm. Um, so number one, having the courage to challenge some of these longstanding inequities and rules. And then number two, there's an education component. There are some people that truly don't understand and understand the female athlete experience mm-hmm. and, and some of those achievements. Um, I think that's a starting point, but it's going to take time. I don't expect it to happen overnight. I think we are moving the needle. I've seen some positive changes. But there's a long way to go. And as I tell you one thing we don't talk about, more women need to have a seat at the table. Mm. That's the only way we're going to be able to change some of these things for women. Mm-hmm. Women who understand the female experience, who are going to advocate for other women, need a seat at the table. There's still not enough um, decision makers at these top global companies around sport at the table. So inclusion is totally necessary and needs to continue to be a focal point for companies, big, small, diverse, inclusive. That's such an important thing. Absolutely. One of the things I want to talk about is you as a brand. You've had ads with Nike. You've been in fashion (laughs) uh, magazines, stores, billboards. What was it like to be that brand ambassador and what kind of responsibilities came with that? Because now we're, we want to get back a little bit on this because student athletes and pros, we want to, because we have athletes listening. We have the people who work with athletes who are listening and just, you know, people who are fans of yours. What, what is it like to represent a brand like that? What were some of the responsibilities in the current state of name, image, and likeness? What would you like the athletes who get that opportunity to do and and how you did it well, what were you doing and what what do they need to be aware of? You know, it caught me off guard when Nike said, first of all, we want to feature you in our advertisements. It's one thing to be a Nike athlete. That's amazing. To actually drive by a building and see your face on the outside of the entire Nike store was surreal. (laughs) So right, that alone was really amazing. And I just felt the the responsibility to, first of all, represent my community, myself as a black woman, mm-hmm. everyone that had contributed to my success, first sure. of all, my family, but then also to really have something impactful to say, to use my platform to change lives. My father always said, the only way to have a legacy is to help someone else, to change someone's life, to leave someone better than you found them. Mm-hmm. So I was always trying to kind of serve through my platform, whether that was you know talking to young people or mm-hmm. whatever it was. Um, and so that was, to me, my responsibility with my platform. Um, When I look at athletes now, I want them also to use their platforms in a positive way, whatever that is that they're passionate about. And it doesn't mean you have to be a robot or you have to be perfect. You want to be authentic. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think you have to remember those younger eyes are on you and and those impressionable, you know, people, the next generation that that look at you for inspiration um, and direction in many ways. And so that is a responsibility, I feel, um, to to whom much is given, much is required. You can't forget that. I agree. I agree. When you reached the point in your career where you felt like it was time to transition from track and field, how did that go for you? What were the highs and, and maybe even if there was a, a low moment in that when all the years of running, all the things you gave to the sport, when that was over, how did, how did you deal with that? And when did you know it was that moment to, to start doing that? What helped me is I had young training partners. And I was struggling to keep up with them. I was struggling to recover. I was struggling. Everything was becoming a struggle. And I said to myself, I, 
I didn't really have a hard time because I just felt like my body and everything around me was telling me it was time. Mm -hmm. What I had a hard time with was, you know, being candid, going through a divorce simultaneously, going through these life changes, and then looking at my resume and freaking out. I've never had a a job before. I'm 35 years old. I've been a full-time athlete since I was 21 years old. Who's going to hire me? Mm. That was terrifying. Okay. So what, what do you mean terrifying? Take us. I mean- I said, okay, I'm getting divorced. That's bad. That's one major life change. Mm-hmm. I'm My career is over. So my identity as an athlete is gone. And uh, I have no job. It's fair. So how am I going to make money? How am I going to make it? How am I going to make the... I was terrified. I was wanted to be depressed, but I had no choice but to find a way. Okay. So I remember I made a video. And the video talked about my time at University of Florida. Mm-hmm. It talked about my time as a professional athlete, the, nego- the contracts I had negotiated for myself. It was a three or three and a half minute video. Sent it out, blasted it out to every hiring manager I could find by email. Do you know people actually called me? And some of them just called me because they wanted to hear my story. Your father's Joe Clark. Oh, I'm a big, can I get a cover in Time Magazine? (laughs) That's fine. But some people wanted to give me a shot because they said, your video told me something about you. You don't have the experience that aligns with what we're looking for, but you're a champion. And the things you've done tell me that you can be successful. Awesome. And my first role, I was a director at a um, hospital as a health and wellness director. My first role. So you pivoted based on you really becoming enterprising and you put out some content on yourself you thought could really stimulate your candidacy in the business world. You literally, yes, literally. put it out there. Where did that come from? I mean, like, I, I've not really heard a lot of people say, I'm going to put a video together. I'm going to send it out and I hope people call me. <laughs> So many people ask me that, like, what made you make that decision? I think I just said, how am I going to convey my strengths? My my strengths are not on this resume. This resume is empty. (laughs) I got to find something to let people know who Hazel Clark is. And I I got three minutes probably at best to get their attention. Mm. I just knew that I had to do that. And I just invested in that. I think the video cost me $500. I had four key job offers that were really strong offers. I went straight to a director level. Um, and I, I had a lot of teammates really admire that approach. Mm-hmm. Um, and that made me feel good also because there's something we don't talk about. There's a, there's a problem with depression for mm-hmm. athletes, professional athletes, especially Olympic athletes. You don't make quite enough to be set for the rest of your life. You leave all the, the bells and the whistles and the crowds are gone in an mm-hmm. instant. What do you do to transition, to, to recreate yourself, to reposition yourself? Mm-hmm. I have so many friends that went from Olympic gold to homeless, literally. What? And so I think my story gave them a little bit of hope. Okay, I can do that. I mm-hmm. might have to think outside the box, but Hazel did it. I can do it as well. So Love that. What ingenuity you put out there. Can, can we find that video? Let's I have it. that up. I we have got, it. Oh, we got to see that. <laughs> I got to see that. I'd love to see it. What, what, I think there's some gold in that video. We got we to gotta talk about that. What? Um, one of the joys of your life is, uh, and we're blessed to see little Hazel here. Yes. Talk about as an elite athlete, your body changes, goes through yes. many things. <laughs> and you, when you decided to become a mother, how, how did that impact your, your career now as you are in a professional state and everything? What, what would you say about moving into that direction? That's one of the biggest life transitions and such. Yes, and I came from the era where you would lose your contract if you had a child. Now there's protection for women. Allison Felix, I have to get them, Alicia Montano, one of my um, yes. uh, competitors, they helped to move the needle on that. But mm-hmm. in my era, you knew you couldn't get pregnant. It was pretty much over for oh, you. Wow. 
And so I put off having a child until later. Um, mm-hmm. And then, as I said, you know, I got divorced as soon as I was tired. And so I had my child at 40 years old. Biggest blessing for me. I awesome. always wanted to be a mother. And for my daughter, people ask me, do I want her to run track? I really want her to be, it sounds cliche, but just happy and find her passion mm-hmm. and find her purpose. And she has no idea. I still don't think she gets that I was a runner. I don't think she gets who her father was. I tried, a grandfather was. I tried to show her lean on me. And she's like, what? I said, that's What's your it? papa. She's like, you're crazy lady. But it hasn't connected for her. I mean, mm-hmm. she knows Talitha. Talitha's her favorite runner, my niece. Mm-hmm. But um, I just hope she sees me in the boardroom at a press conference doing things like this. And she mm-hmm. just watches and, and picks up something that will help her and her future. I want her to be a strong woman, a confident woman. And uh, that, that's my hope for her. I love that. That certainly is. Uh, I'm a dad and, you know, I've been married quite some time. And one of the most important decisions I ever made was to find the right partner. So I can tell you it builds from there. Children, you know, where you live, what you do professionally. So I'm very happy. That's probably your most important decision, right? The right partner. I, I remember my wife giving me this poster before we got married. It was like over 90% of your happiness or misery will be in the person you decide to be a companion with or marry. And I was like, wow. Okay. So it was like, I got to get this right. Yes. It's key. (laughs) What would you say as now you are fully in a profession, you are fully doing what you love to do at this present time, and your transition seems to be going well. You live abroad now. You live in a whole nother part of the world. Talk to us about what that transition is to to grow up here, but now to live abroad and yeah. and to be in this industry that you're in. Talk to us about what you do now, particularly. Well, I'll tell you, first of all, you know, going to another country, um, I was very, very nervous about relocating, living abroad, leaving my family, moving mm-hmm. away. Um, there, it is one. Bermuda is gorgeous, first of all, and the people are absolutely amazing. Shout and out, I, shout out to shout Bermuda. Shout out to Bermuda. <laughs> and I'm so grateful for the opportunity that I got with uh, Bermuda Tourism Authority. That being said, there also were some challenges and there's some loneliness. It's hard. I have no blood relatives besides my daughter there. Mm-hmm. Um, there are moments, it's a high pressure job that I'm in. I'm the director of global sales and business development. Wow. Um, and so I, I have a lot of responsibility around that to negotiate deals, to mm-hmm. miss target, to meet targets, mm-hmm. um, to, to bring business, you know, events and, sure. and, and sports tourism to the island. Um, and I put, kind of a lot of pressure on myself as I did as a runner. I just know how to manage it better. I have Mm -hmm. the tools now to look at it positively and to put it into perspective. So um, I love what I'm doing. Um, I feel really fortunate to be where I am today. I don't believe God makes any mistakes. I went there for a speaking engagement and met my husband, who's an amazing partner and has helped me grow in so many ways as a woman. Um, so yeah, it's it's great. So what's your husband's name? Shane McElwain. <laughs> McElwain. I'm glad yeah. you said the last name because I was trying to pronounce it. Yeah, everyone says that. <laughs> Shout out to Shane. We're so happy you could be with us and him too. Tell us what what you're here for today at the campus of University of Florida. You are decked out in your oh, yeah. orange and blue. Yep. Your daughter is decked out. Yep. Talk to us about what today is and what that symbolizes for you, and what are you going to get to do. Today, we are being honored as a team for our 96 and 97 SEC titles. We actually were one of the few teams that swept. We had, um, I think it's called a three-peat. Um, we had three SEC titles, indoor and outdoor, in a row um, wow. for, for three years. We had a great team, a really amazing team. 
Um, and they're all back. Many of them are back. And mm-hmm. so we're going to celebrate, you know, catch up with each other. We brought our kids back okay. and do the Gator Walk, go to the game, be honored on the field. Um, this, even though I was raised in New Jersey, Gainesville really is my home. As I said, my father mm. moved here when I went to college. He had a ranch here, which I'm going to go visit. And so I'm just happy to be home and with my friends again and to celebrate just the whole experience of being a Gator, really. And you have your daughter and husband with you. Absolutely. So now you have some added value to that. Yes. What would you say for anyone who's a student, higher achiever, athlete, et cetera, looking to make a transition or multiple transitions as you have, what advice would you give them? Because this is not easy. I think one of the most hidden skills that's undervalued, not talked about, but needs to be a skill of the 21st century is the ability to transition yes. and to do it over and over, over yeah. and over. Would you give us your perspective on that? Thank you for saying that. Because I know that I have more transitions ahead of me. I think we all do. None of us want to stay stagnant. I think we, we have to find a way, as you said, to grow, to transition. For me, the key to that has really been first to identify what what is my purpose? What am I trying to achieve? And kind of work backwards from there. So I always think, what do I want from my next step, you know, my next phase? Um, I think also pushing past that self-doubt. We all have it, that fear. Look, it's not always going to go your way. And you might tra- try to transition to one thing and come up short. And the ability to see, maybe it wasn't that you came up short. Maybe life is pushing you in another direction, which you need to go to. So I think you need to have flexibility as well with your transitions and not just have this rigid picture for yourself that if I don't do this, it was a failure. No, there are a lot of different avenues we can take for our success and for our, our ultimate you know, growth and achievement. So again, for me, the big thing that I see people do, they give up on themselves too quickly. They, they feel failure and then they, they turn away or they retreat. You have to push through the failure. You have to learn something from the setback, mm. learn something from the failure and use it to catapult you to whatever it is you're trying to achieve. You just can't give up. I mean, that's what it is at the end of the day. Be resilient overcome. When you get down, knocked down, find a way to get up. That's mm, what I would tell mm, people. Write that down. That's <laughs> good stuff. Love it. Love it. Would you w- talk about the, the side of Hazel that maybe we don't know? What, what's Hazel when she's not working, when she's not mommy, <laughs> when not the wife in a sense? You're always all those, yes. but what, what are some of the things that are allowing you to transition in different places and tap into things that you're doing. I heard about a, a family foundation or things. Yes. So what, what's, tell us about that side of you that we may not know. Yeah, I think there's two things. On a, a light note, I'm a practical joker. So you have okay. to be careful with me. I'm always playing practical You, you have a very <laughs> hearty laugh. I know that for I, sure. So my friends, they, half of the things I say they don't trust. But on a serious note, I am in the phase of trying to extend my family's legacy and the mm-hmm. foundation that my father set. And I'm in the phase of doing that through service. Um, that's really important to me. So you talked about our foundation. Our foundation is all about service. And what's know, the name? Give it to us. The Clark Family Legacy Project. So we, are, we do sponsorships. We have our camps. We have our clinics. We uh, mentor. We have events. You know, We're trying to impact the community in any way we can. And I want to say to everyone, people think you have to go give someone $25,000 a scholarship or have a big program to be impactful. You can have a legacy and be impactful by helping one young person. That's right. Yeah, that's and right. Just, I just want everyone to remember that. Just do the small things um, to make someone's life better. And that's what we're trying to do every day as a family. Um, 
I think that's the main thing that I want people to understand about. That's my commitment. And that's what makes me feel good at this point in my life. Awesome. We want to support you and we want to continue to consume you. How can we follow you? How can we bring opportunities uh, to help you grow? The, the Gator ecosystem universe nation is huge and, and just people in general. People love you and your family and what you guys represent. How can we follow you, whether it's social or how can we support you and uh, what you do? Well, I will tell you, I have a TED Talk, um, upcoming TED Talk. Okay. Um, and so that will be on October 2nd. Um, and so that information is on our, our Clark Family Legacy website, on my Twitter, just Hazel Clark TV, on my Instagram, Hazel Clark Runs. I have Hazel Clark Facebook. Give it to us. Yes, it, yes. It. So um, please follow. You can just Google Hazel Clark and most of that will come up. I'm pretty active on social media. Um, there's also an email address um, that you can go through our website and contact any of me or any of my family members, whether you want us to speak or just want to connect on a project. Um, so those are the best ways to contact me. And I do feel that Gator Nation is behind me. I actually hear from a Gator at least twice a month on LinkedIn or some platform whether it's just a, a note of support or an opportunity to connect. And that makes me really, really excited and blessed. And, and so I just want to continue to have that network, but also to be that for someone else, to mentor our younger Gators and uh, that are coming up. And, you know, I think that's my responsibility because so much was given to me through this experience being a Gator. All right. We don't end the hit show with having the most fun. So okay. get ready, sit up, sit uh -oh, up, sit okay. up. We are about to enter, and we're going to close on this, the speed round. Oh, so I love this. All right. So I'm going to say it real quick. You have no time. You just okay. respond right away. Okay. So you ready? You ready? Okay. You ready? Okay. What is your favorite song to work to or work out to? Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Lizzo, it's about that time. Okay. Good, good, good. What do you think about when you're alone in the car driving? Ooh, I think about my daughter most of the time and what I'm going to do with her and how I'm going to set up her schedule, et cetera. Who or what inspires you to get up and get going every day? Again, I got to go over to my family, my family as a whole. What's one of the most interesting things about you that we wouldn't learn from your resume, stats, et cetera? That as outgoing as I am, I have a side of me that's super reclusive. People are shocked. Like I really do um, spend a lot of time alone and just thinking and meditating. Um, and that's something people are shocked by because I am so outgoing and I do love people. So I think that's one thing. Who's somebody you would love to meet and you haven't met? God, I've met her, but I want to re-meet Serena Williams. I love her. Okay, Serena. <laughs> uh, what do you do to relax? I, um, I like to just, this sounds weird, clean. I find that relaxing. Like, isn't that weird? Who does that? Oh, and I like to run now because I run really slow. Okay. And I'm, I don't have the pressure anymore. Okay. So, so you I just can endure just for enjoyment. I can look at the view. Okay. What's the last movie you watched that inspired you, made you feel good? Um, the movie with King Richards. Oh, okay. I like that good. one. King okay. Richards. And what ritual do you do daily that would surprise people? Like something, you know, unique? Unique. I mean, I, I guess it's not really unique, but I, I get up at, 5.30 in the morning and I go on a really slow jog <laughs> and it feels like I'm close to God. I'm close to my father. I just talk, talk to God, talk to my father. It's quiet. No one's out there. And that, that's my peace. Oh, wow. I love that. Thank you for being on our show today. <laughs> this was awesome. I absolutely love my time on the hit show. And I love what this stands for. This is so important to talk about transitions and to share stories. And thank you. Thank you for having me. 
we would love for you to stay in touch with us and we want to support you. So we're going to put this on social media and make sure everybody hears this. So we want you to also do the same. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you to Hazel Clark for being here and for the University of Florida and the Institute for Coaching Excellence. This is Kevin Carr, CEO of Pro to CEO, saying how you transition or the hit show should be on everybody's podcast because you learn things about what to do. We talk about sports, business, and going beyond. Thank you, Hazel Clark, for being with us today. And we hope to continue to build with you in the future. Thank you very much. And you you have been on the hit show. I love it. I love it. Thank you. You're welcome.